Good morning, everybody. It's good to, to see all of you here, and great to have you if you are connecting with us online. Just a few things here before we get into the text. Thanks, Molly, for reading such a long passage. Um, tomorrow starts the trial for the four officers that were charged with the killing of George Floyd. And so I would encourage you to be in prayer for um, that trial, our city, um, for safety, for justice, for truth, um, for peace. A group of pastors in the Twin Cities are gathering uh, this afternoon at the Hennepin County Government Center in the plaza. I'll be joining them about three o'clock. So again, if you could be in prayer this week for these events as they unfold, uh, we uh, we we're really called to pray for the good of our of our cities, and uh, there's much need for that. Actually, why don't I pray for that now, Lord God? Um, we are uh, thankful that you have established governments to make and enforce laws for good. Uh, but we recognize that God in our human societies, uh, even our best efforts, efforts ordained by you to, to do good, uh, oftentimes go bad as well. And so, Lord, we, uh, we call upon your, upon your name and we call upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ um, and his sovereignty over all things in heaven and on earth. And Lord, we ask that the, the, the will of God would prevail, that uh, truth would be made known, that justice would be served. Um, and God, that you would strengthen our Twin Cities here um, in peace and in our cities throughout this nation as well, for we know that it will be watched uh, really globally. And so, Lord God, we, uh, we, we trust ourselves to your care. And we ask that uh, in all these things, uh, your will will be done and that your gospel would somehow go forward. In your son's name we pray, amen. I wanted to just take a, a minute to, to explain kind of our approach to the, our sermons. Um, you know, we're in familiar territory as we go through these first four weeks and are covering um, those passages and those books of Scripture that are foundational to our understanding of who we are as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ and what our mission and calling is. We've got a 13-week series here on our mission and calling, and we're starting the, the, uh, the first set of sermons, four sermons. We're looking at the Bible, and then we're going to look at culture, and then we're going to look at strategy. And so we're in, that, we're in the Bible part, and these are familiar passages um, but one of the th things that I'm trying to do, that we're trying to do, is, is, is communicate these passages in a way that, um, that would maybe make sense or um, connect with outsiders, people that aren't a part of our church, people that aren't familiar with Christianity. I'm re we're really trying to show how the, the text of the Bible really connects to a fundamental human longings that we all have, a pursuit of the good and the beautiful, uh, the pursuit of redemption for our past lives, uh, some order for our present life and for a vision 
for our future. These are things that, that I think are really present within all humanity. We may define what is good and beautiful in different ways. We may see redemption as something different. We may see a hope for the future as something different. These things aren't necessarily things that we agree upon, but they are things that we all, I think, long for in order to order and build our lives. And so we're, we're trying to communicate the text in such a way that it that helps us to see some of these more fundamental human longings and, and communicate them in a way that uh, our, our spheres of influence can, can maybe understand. And we're also trying to um, grow our own confidence in our faith and in our identity. One of the things that we looked at last week is the role that narrative literature plays, the role that stories play in the formation of our, of our own identities and how we see ourselves. And we, we, we know that we see our lives as story. We see them as having a beginning and an end and a plot, and, and we hope for redemption for the story of our lives past, and we long for a better hope in the future. And so um, as we grow more knowledge and understanding and confident in the stories and the story of Scripture, it, it hopefully strengthens our own sense of identity and confidence in, in Christ and the purposes that He's called us to. So last week we looked at, as we looked, you know, we looked at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke um, is the the uh, the story of Jesus's life written in such a way that shows that He fulfilled all of the Old Testament. And so we had this image of the transfiguration on a mountain, and the transfiguration was, was Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and they were radiating with, with, with beauty and glory and splendor and brilliance. And so it was a, a very beautiful image for the few disciples that Jesus took up on the hill with him. Um, and so you had together integrated into this, this vision, this transfiguration of Jesus, a Three things. Um, you had the, the affirmation that the prophetic text of Scripture was fulfilled. And so there's this textual Bible line that, that showed that all of these things written hundreds of years prior to Christ had now been fulfilled in this man, Jesus Christ. So that's prophetic text, but it's also, it's also history, one of the things that, that Luke goes to great uh, effort to do in both his gospel and in this book of Acts um, is to demonstrate that, that the events around Jesus and his people, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New, the events around Jesus and his people are anchored within the context of history and, so, uh, and, and geography, real places, real events, Real people, as you know, Molly read this morning, that so many places that they identified as real places. Uh, Mortimer Adler wrote a book a number of years ago called Truth and Religion, and it kind of told his story of how he came to believe in, in Jesus Christ. And he's a very prominent philosopher. He was the guy that put the whole Britannica encyclopedia together. Um, and he said that one of the things that you have to look for if you're looking for truth in religion is, is it historical with the assumption that if God were real and if God were powerful, he's going to show himself in history. 
And so the transfiguration not only shows that Jesus was the, the fulfillment of the prophetic text of the Bible, but also the historical movements of history. And then finally, and I think this is a really important thing, Jesus and Moses and Elijah were presented in beauty, in brilliant splendor. So much so that, that Peter was like, hey, let's set up some tents. We want to stay for a while and just take it all in. This, this vision of beauty, this vision of something more glorious and beautiful than we are now experiencing is another aspect of the compelling story of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about our own stories, and you know, we spent some time last week talking about this, um, we want to evaluate our pasts, we want to order our present, and we want to create a vision for the future. And we want them to be real, we want them to be uh, beautiful, and what we find ourselves in today is in a state where it's increasingly difficult to have confidence around the building of our own stories because putting words and language to our stories is increasingly difficult in our postmodern context. We, we have no shared sense. We have no communal sense. Uh, I mean, there are pockets of communities that share identities and callings, but in terms of a, of a culture, um, we have no shared set of ideals and words and language that affirm what is good. What is beautiful? What is true? What does it mean to pursue a, a good and meaningful life? But Charles Taylor argues, a prominent philosopher, looking at secularity and how we come to an understanding of our own selves, he says, as individuals, you know, as a society, we, we may agree that there is no absolute good. There is no one big story through which we all can find our sense of identities and purpose. He says, but as individuals, as individuals, we can't but help to determine and to make distinctions and to make evaluations about what is good. What are we going to stand for? What are we going to oppose? How am I going to build and order my life? What am I looking for? What is the good? What is the bad? These are things that we as individuals, we can't run away from them. But in order to think about them and in order to articulate them, uh, we have to have words and we have to have language. And those things come from communities of people. So increasingly what we find in our day is that our families, maybe our churches or some religious community, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our public spheres, uh, none of these things are shared and so as, as, as people that live in a, in a culture with all of these various communities that are, that are pressing for our affections, that are pressing for our allegiance, we're, we're in this place where we've got divided allegiances. We've got our families, we've got our friends, we've got our religious communities, we've got the culture at large. And so we're left, we're really left to our own feelings and, and to our own preferences in terms of identifying and establishing what is good for ourselves and then how we're going to, to live our lives based upon what we believe to be the good and the beautiful and the true. And we have to do this in the context of all of these various groups that have different definitions and visions for what these things are. 
And so we find ourselves increasingly uncertain, increasingly uncertain about, and, and, and lacking confidence about whether the stories we make, about, uh, we make up about our lives are actually true. Are they substantive enough to provide what I'm looking for? And so we're in this place of uncertainty. And this place, um, you know, Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, articulates it quite well. We, we live in a culture where we have created our own meanings, but created meanings are weak and not as strong and durable and certain as what he says are inherent meanings. meanings. So created meanings are meanings that we assemble for ourselves, how we understand our, who we are, what it means to live a good life, what we give our lives to, what, what is my life here for? So we can create those meanings. Or we can understand that there are some things inherently true about me as a human being that gives my life meaning a purpose and identity. So Keller's argument is that inherent meanings are stronger. They're more durable in terms of their ability to fulfill what we're looking for. And we're going to come to see one of these examples from the, the uh, story of Philippi. We're going to see an example of someone who's created a meaning for his own life, and it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. So we're going to come back to that. But what I want to look at now is, so at this point in the story, we have this transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We have this transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So what are the inherent meanings? What are sources of identity? What are sources of redemption? What can we see as good and beautiful in the story of the transfiguration? Well, we see that it demonstrates the promise of life over death, first promised in Genesis chapter 3. And death isn't just the, 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 the dying of our physical bodies. It is the conditions that we as humans face who live under what the Bible calls sin. When things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, that's sin. And we see unfolding in Scripture after the first man and woman sinned, we see guilt, we see shame, we see relationships broken, we see violence and murder, we see sexual immorality, we see the oppression of the weak and vulnerable, we see violence and bloodshed all over. So all of these human ills and physical death itself, God promised that he would bring about a child born of woman who would conquer death. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so the promise of life over death is something that we can hold on to as a part of what it means to be a human being that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the promise of an eternal kingdom of life and radiant glory. There's a reason why Jesus' appearance was altered. The kingdom is going to be a place where our very lives, our very bodies are altered, and we become beautiful. We become 
beautiful, unaffected by the sin on this earth. And all of these things were verified in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and Jesus' altered appearance upon his resurrection from the dead. And so those who believe in this gospel become dead to sin, which means that we are alive to God, which means that we can overcome the things that bring destruction and violence and death and, and hardship and evil on this world. Our lives do not need to be enslaved to them. We are not addicts anymore to the sins of our flesh and of our culture. We can live a life of redemption. That's what's promised in the gospel. A life that we can look back on and always see God's redemptive work increasingly making us beautiful and above, and above reproach. We become children of God, which means that we're a member of his eternal family, and that family makes, is made up of a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. We are part of this family now together. We are citizens of his kingdom with all of the privileges and rights that that entails. And so, really, belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ as represented in this transfiguration gives us a whole lot of meaning and identity to start with. And that message, then, of, of Jesus and the kingdom of a rebuilt identity, of a rebuilt meaning and purpose, of the promise of a beautiful and hopeful and redemptive life. That was the message of the gospel. Gospel literally means good news, yes, but it was good news in a context. And the context in its, in its original use was that a new king has come. A, world, a new world is going to be made. That's what gospel meant. And so the disciples were given the responsibility to proclaim the message of that gospel to the nations. That's how the gospel of Luke ends up. That's how the book of Acts begins. So the book of Acts is the story of the expansion of the message of the gospel from Jerusalem to the nations. And so we come here to this passage in Acts chapter 16, and I picked this passage because it, it brings together a lot of the um, realities of the message of the gospel in a very personal way in the lives of these people in this passage. And it shows here in the first part of the passage that was read, the Spirit is leading this process. Jesus told the disciples that they were to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit was given to them who would then empower them and their work of taking the message. And in this final vision, so, so Paul and Silas, they tried to go several places. So they were on the, the, the western part of Asia Minor. I think it's the Aegean Sea between Asia Minor and, and Philippi and Macedonia and Greece. I think that's right. Anyway, they're a long ways away from Philippi. And they try to go into various parts of Asia Minor, and somehow, the text doesn't say, the Holy Spirit prevented them. And finally, the Spirit gives a vision to Paul and Silas, and it's the vision of a person. It's the vision of a person asking for help. And so it's the Spirit putting a human face on the need that people have for the gospel. The gospel is meeting real needs that people are longing for. 
And so the story then unfolds. They go into Macedonia, and a major city in the area was, was Philippi. It's a Roman colony. And we come to this woman, Lydia. And we have to ask the question, because the authors of the text are very particular on these kinds of things. Why is Lydia... So there's this big need in Macedonia. Why is Lydia the first? What help does she need? You know, the the text doesn't say specifically. The the narrative of Scripture is is what some scholars say. It's it's very economical in in its means. But there is some description. She was the head of her household. She owned a, her own business. The business was of such a type because of it was a, she was a dealer in purple. And dealers in purple had very elite clients because it was, you know, they didn't have what we understand as modern chemistry. To get purple, you had to find purple things. And it was actually from snails. Very expensive process to get purple. Anything. So her clientele were, were elite. She's independent. She's successful. She's wealthy. We have to assume she has no husband because she's making all of the decisions around her household, but yet she has a household. And so she's either got children or she has um, servants that she has employed that live with her. She enjoyed privileges because of her particular circumstance that weren't available to, to most women and weren't available to a lot of men. She was in a, she was in a very particular and privileged state. But yet we have to ask the question, why is she presented as the one, the first one in Philippi, this place where there is great need for the gospel? It says that she was a worshiper of God, which means that she had biblical religion. She wasn't an idol worshiper. She wasn't an emperor worshiper. She, she, whenever Luke uses this phrase, she was a worshiper, 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 <laughs> Of God, which meant that for what she knew, she followed the biblical God. But yet, what did she need? What help did she need? At some place, Lydia was incomplete, Lydia was unfulfilled, and the gospel answered her need. Then the story moves to the slave girl. So here we have a girl that is publicly trafficked for money, for her ability to tell the future, divination. And the text says that Paul got to a point where he was so annoyed that he turned around and he commanded by the authority of Jesus Christ, who sits as king over all things and heaven and on earth, the kingdom of God has come, Jesus said. So by the authority of Jesus Christ, he commanded the demon that was possessing this young girl to come out of her. Now, I don't know why Paul delayed. I don't know if Paul realized that, you know, if, if, he, if he entered into that sphere, you know, because here you have people taking advantage of a vulnerable person, exploiting them for financial gain, right? 
if he interrupts what is an acceptable practice for money-making, if he interrupts slavery, it may cause a big stir. That may be why he delayed. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But it took a while for him to get really annoyed at it. So we don't know anything about this girl. We don't know if she believed the gospel. A lot of the times when Jesus would cast out a demon in the stories of the gospels, uh, the person would then believe in him and thank him and want to love and serve and follow him. Uh, we don't know any of that information. We don't, we don't have any idea what happened to this girl. All we know is that by the authority of Jesus Christ, her exploitation by these, by these men ended. And then we come to the jailer. So the jailer, and this story, it really is a, a, it's the story of the consequences that Paul and Silas faced for freeing this girl from slavery and from demon possession. So they cast out the demon, and the, the owners see that their, the phrase is very specific, that their, that their hope for gain, that their hope for gain was gone. So here, you've interrupted the hopes of these people. You've changed their meaning and their identity and their calling. And they are pretty mad about it. So they are illegal. They bring him before the magistrates under trumped up charges. They are illegally charged. They are illegally beaten. They are illegally jailed. And they're put in the worst spot in the prison. It's essentially solitary confinement. And they're put, and they're put in the stocks, which are most likely their feet and their hands, so they can't move. But Paul and Silas, they don't complain. They worship God. They worship God. Now, I think that, 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 and we're going to see why, it's really, the, the text really presses upon us to, I think, ask ourselves, how would we respond in that circumstance? Would, 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 would we respond by praying and singing the worship of God? Or would we want to declare our rights? Would we want to, to bring down fire from God because he was in authority. And, and, and heck, Paul may have been able to do something like that. Remember the apostles around Jesus when somebody was doing something that, that they didn't like and they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down upon them? And Jesus corrected them. But they worshiped. They were put into this, this unfair circumstance. They were bloodied, they were beaten, and yet they prayed and sang. Well, then there's an earthquake. There's an earthquake. The jail doors are opened. Their bonds are, are freed. And the jailer comes to a place where he almost kills himself. So here's where you see. So the jailer's sense of identity, his sense of meaning, his sense of calling, is all wrapped up in his work. It's all wrapped up in his personal honor around his work. Now, it's very possible that he, that he would have been put to death if the prisoners had all escaped. That's what happened to the guards that, that were on duty when Jesus rose from the dead and left his, left his grave. So maybe he was just, he figured that he was going to be killed. But anyway, his, all of his, his reason for living was gone. That's a created meaning. 
He built his sense of meaning around these things that were dependent upon circumstances and dependent upon other people's expectations of him and dependent upon his own performance. That's a creative meaning. Once those things were stripped away by no fault of his own, his, his, his reason for living was gone. He could not endure right? his, the story of his life that he had created for himself could not endure failure and dishonor. It's the weakness of a created meaning. But yet Paul and Silas, the text doesn't say this, but it's what they did. They loved him. They loved him. Rather than fleeing, rather than rebelling, they sang and worshiped, and they stayed put when their shackles were released. And his world came crashing down. He had never seen anything like this. Now, I know, I know one jailer. I actually know a jailer. He's a member of this church, Matt Childs. He's a good man. And he really works hard at loving people in his care at the Hennepin County Jail. It is tough work being a jailer, and it takes its toll. I have known people that have been in county jails and state prisons and federal facilities. And the overwhelming testimony that I get from all of these people that have talked to me about what it means and what it appears to be the life of a jailer is that oftentimes the jailers seem to be as imprisoned as the prisoners themselves. They are hard, they are bitter. They do not respect people. The treatment of other people could not be characterized as beautiful. And my guess is, my guess is, is that this jailer probably took his hardened self, his anger, out on his family. This man experienced a love from Paul and from Silas that was world-changing, and he's transformed. He had heard them singing about Jesus Christ and salvation, and he runs into them when, when he has experienced a grace that he has never experienced before, where they saved him from dishonor, where they saved him from failure. Even though he had brutally treated them, they came to him bloodied, beat up, wounded. He just threw them right into the stocks. But the man is transformed when they share the message of the gospel to him. And his whole family is also transformed. They've seen a change in their husband and father. And they are convinced of the truth and the reality of the gospel as well. And then what does he do? The first thing, he treats their wounds. Something that he probably recognizes that he should have done a lot earlier but demonstrates this very simple thing. The wounds and how the wounds were treated tell the story of the change of this, of this jailer. And then you have the story end. The next day, the police come to release Paul and Silas, and they say, no, 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 no. We were beaten and charged and thrown in prison illegally. We're Roman citizens. We deserved a trial. 
They had no trial. So the magistrates were really freaked out about this because that would have really reflected bad upon them. And they came and apologized and asked them to leave and to quit causing any other problems. So if we look at, if we look at these stories of these people, how are their, how are their stories changed? Well, Lydia, I, I think, were empty and unfulfilled, even with all of her success. She's now complete and satisfied. Her capacities as a household head, her capacities as a, as a businesswoman, she still has those, but now she is using them with generosity and hospitality in service to the kingdom of God with her newfound friends, Paul and Silas and their team, of which Luke would have been a part. Generosity and hospitality emerged from her, and she now has eternal family and friends right in her home. See, she moved from Thyatira hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So now she has a family and friends in her own home, an eternal family and friends. Her life has been made increasingly complete and beautiful, even though her life was pretty good to start out with compared to the young girl. Again, we don't know we don't know what happened to the young girl. We don't know her story. But I think that, that an important aspect of the gospel's work in this world on the part of faithful Christians is what's shown here in the story of the young girl. Are we ever in contexts where economic gain takes precedent over the welfare of people? I think you can look probably in any industry or discipline in our world. The opportunity for exploitation is possible. The people of God are called to come in and to reflect the kingdom of God and to address evils within our spheres, but also do good within our spheres to manifest the kingdom. The scriptures are clear. God prefers all people to be free. And obviously free from the demon possession. And so there's an aspect of this story about the young girl that should envision for us as, as Christians um, having a difference in the world, even at risk, even at our own risk, to do good. And when we are able to correct wrongdoing. And the story of the jailer, the transformation of a hard, bitter man through the gospel and through love, the redemption of his past. We have no idea how that jailer treated the many people that came through his, and he's the head jailer, so he, he sets the spirit and the dynamic for the whole jail. We have no idea of knowing how he treated those other people, but it's probably fairly harshly if his treatment of Silas and Paul show us. His past is redeemed. He now has a more complete and family life in the gospel. And he has a completely new approach to his work, doesn't he? Doesn't, now, we don't know the rest of the story of the jailer. We can't make assumptions, but he probably remained a jailer. But he's probably going to treat people a lot different from that point on. And can you imagine how many times he probably told the story to people coming through his jail, the story of these two guys and how he met Jesus Christ? He could have affected hundreds and hundreds of people for the rest of his career. 
bringing life to them, people in jail, much like we do in our efforts at Twin Cities Ministries and the work that we do in the jails. But then if you look at Paul and Silas, you have to ask the question, why didn't they claim their legal rights before they were beaten and jailed? And this is, I think, really a huge lesson for us who, who claim to know Jesus. Why didn't they claim their legal, legal rights before? Why did they wait until after? Did they know what would happen? It's almost like they planned it. Did they know what would happen if they endured suffering and the opportunity for the gospel that would emerge? It seemed like they did. But even if they didn't, they knew the gospel. And they knew, because they know the story of Jesus, they know the promises of God, and they know the power of the kingdom, that they know that the gospel is going to advance and that glory and beauty will emerge through suffering. Through suffering. And if you think about Paul, Paul, in the early part of his story in Acts chapters 9 and 10, Paul was on what he thought was a mission from God. He thought he had his entire life together. And he was beating and jailing people. And now he understands that he's really on a mission from God. God has directly spoken to him, the Lord Jesus Christ had. And now, on mission with God, he is being beaten and jailed. What a change. But look at the beautiful results of Paul's life. And the lives of these people from all various parts of life. A very successful and independent and strong businesswoman. A girl, a young girl with no power or freedom in her life. And a hardened jailer whose entire life and family and story and future was completely changed. So the challenge for us, can we see our stories in any of these people? Do these stories give us ideas and words to make sense of our own stories? Do these stories give you a vision for your story? How many of us are in a situation where if we were willing to endure suffering would lead to the betterment of other people's lives? Where we're willing to take the hit rather than claim our rights? What are the unique and redemptive and meaningful and beautiful things that Jesus wants to do in our lives and through our lives for others. I think that's what these stories are asking us to consider. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, these stories are great. And it would be, it would be very worthwhile to even explore them even more. But God, I pray that you would impress upon our minds and hearts uh, the truth of these stories to us and help us to see ourselves in them and to be challenged by them so that we can find life that is truly meaningful, or we can find an identity that is given to us and not created by us, so that we can find uh, the good and the true and the beautiful in our own lives. 
In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.